I'm Maria. I'm Shadio. And I'm Amber. We're from Jerusalem. We're the producers of the Women Behind the Wall podcast. This podcast features stories of how the political seeps into the private lives of people in Israel and Palestine, and how women experience the conflict. These narratives give you a glimpse into the lives of women with deep hopes and aspirations. Most of the women interviewed live in the West Bank. They're women behind the wall. We hope you stay a bit, listen to their stories, and hear the messages they hope you'll hear. Today on Women Behind the Wall, we hear from Heather, an Israeli-American Christian who lives in Jerusalem and works on social justice and human rights issues affecting Palestinians in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. This episode focuses mostly on Palestinian women in East Jerusalem and briefly addresses Palestinian women in the West Bank. The way Israel's separation wall is constructed leaves one quarter to one third of East Jerusalemite Palestinians on the other side of the wall, meaning they have to cross checkpoints to go to work and live their daily lives in the city they were born and raised. Heather gives us a glimpse into the challenges many women in East Jerusalem face, as most women experiencing the suffering Heather describes are hesitant to be interviewed, worrying about the implications of their testimony on their families and their precarious political situation. Listen to Heather's story of how she came to live in Israel, how she understands the political situation as a Christian, and of the work she is involved in to document the experiences Palestinians endure as a result of the Israeli occupation. I'm Heather. I came from North Carolina. I grew up in a family that was Christian, pretty pro-Israel, although at the same time fairly social justice oriented. And I think that that greatly impacted my orientation today. I think with my parents' generation, a lot of them, they grew up on the stories of the Holocaust, and so supporting Israel was actually considered a very social justice-oriented thing. However, I did not grow up with a great knowledge of the Palestinians. I ended up coming to Israel and Palestine for the first time when I was 16 with a church group and it was right at the break of the Second Intifada. This is the time that I first gained a little bit more awareness of the situation here. We were visiting a family, they were Christian Zionists, and they were actually living on a settlement that was close to Janine. During that time, there were a lot of riots and a lot of protests in Janine. And so I actually vividly remember seeing the tensions beginning to boil and beginning to uh, get stronger and just not understanding entirely what the background was behind it. And then going back to the US and reading the news and seeing what was going on in the Second Intifada. And the entire time I kept thinking about, like there's more to this that I am not understanding. When I had an opportunity years later to come back as part of a study program, I decided like, I'm, I really want to understand this. I also learned about my own Jewish roots during this time, and it was during the break of the 2009 Gaza War. There were a lot of student protests, and I was at the same time being 
courted by the Jewish community, telling me about my Jewish roots, while at the same time connected to a lot of pro-Palestinian activists, and I didn't know where I stood on the issues. So I came as part of a program. During the program here, I was actually really challenged. We visited refugee camps, we spoke with extreme sides on both sides, we spoke with Hilltop Youth, we spoke with even leaders from some of the Islamic movements, just to learn a lot more about the situation overall. The program was trying to teach us to have a balanced perspective on the conflict, which I think was at that time my main goal, and I ended up staying, and I married an Israeli. I think that it was after the 2014 Gaza War that I began to shift a bit away from the desire to always be balanced in my approach to the conflict here. I realized that there's a lot of injustice and my own faith, I felt that Jesus was someone who stood on the side of the oppressed and challenged the systems of the day. And so my perspective began to change like into how can we challenge the current situation and it's not balanced and there's a lot of injustice and the idea that we can just all come equal distance and solve this conflict is not going to happen until we address the um, inequalities and an injustice. And I believe that my faith actually really highly motivated me in that, although most of the people surrounding me have very different theology in that area. Heather shares how she got involved in social issues in East Jerusalem. I began to work both volunteering and then later as an employee for a women's center that was located in East Jerusalem. Women would come with a lot of stories, just very heavy stories of how both the occupation was affecting them and of violence within the home. And I began to see that these things are often highly connected and it was happening across the spectrum, even higher income homes, lower income homes, it seemed that a lot of the families were facing these pressures from the occupation and from the different human rights violations that they were experiencing on a daily basis and that would actually translate into pressures within the home which often included abuse from uh, husbands or male figures who often are traveling on a daily basis through checkpoints and they are getting harassed by soldiers and then they would bring it out on their family. I began to want to understand more and I also decided that I would like to work with women from some of the lower income areas. So I connected with a woman who, she's a Palestinian who is from a Muslim background, who also was beginning to embark on these issues. And we began to do surveys within some of the neighborhoods in East Jerusalem. While Israel annexed East Jerusalem after the 1967 war, and Jerusalem's municipal boundaries include both East and West Jerusalem, people's lives and experiences are very different on the two sides of the city. Heather explains some of these differences. 
When I say East Jerusalem, I'm referring to the areas that are beyond what was taken in 1967. In 1967, Israel basically occupied East Jerusalem, which is over what's referred to as the Green Line, and annexed it. And Israel tries to claim that Jerusalem is unified. Even some of the people that are for annexing the West Bank, they um, give it as an example of the positive features of annexation. However, in reality, it's a much different situation. Jerusalem is not unified. West Jerusalem is a Western society that is very comfortable. Most people, their day-to-day -day lives are fairly peaceful. Whereas in East Jerusalem, the lands that were annexed, they still do not even have many of their basic services, such as garbage pickup, don't even run there re regularly, which forces people to have to burn their trash. The sewage runs into the streets. For example, even from the university that I attended, Hebrew University, their sewage runs straight into Ali Sawiya, and nobody does anything about it because it's just East Jerusalem. And the poverty rates are very high. Over 70% of people live under the poverty line, which is obviously far, far greater than in West Jerusalem. And often even uh, their rights to movement are restricted. Whenever somebody from East Jerusalem commits a violent act, often the neighborhood is blocked off for several days, and people can't get in and out of out to work. Um, and they often work at minimum wage jobs where they're fairly dispensable, so not arriving for a couple of days would mean losing your job. So I think that it's important to realize like that it's almost like two cities within one, and it's not a unified city as many people would suggest. Heather continues explaining the results of the surveys she conducted with a Palestinian colleague in East Jerusalem. What we found was shocking. I mean, the majority of um, the women were experiencing gender-based violence. They were also very high unemployment. And this, by far, impacts the home environment as well. And so many of these women said that there was just no support. They couldn't go to neighbors because there's also a culture of like keeping honor and trying to keep up face for the family. And so to say that they were experiencing these things was a sign of weakness, but they had nowhere to go. And they were sharing with us that they wanted a neutral place where they could receive support and be strengthened as women and learn how to cope with the traumas that they were experiencing as women and that they were experiencing under the occupation. And so we decided this was something we want, we really were challenged to begin to address. We asked Heather how violence resulting from the occupation, combined with patriarchy and the cultural emphasis on honor and shame, affect women's lives. Any place where you have a society or people group that is powerless, then you have the tendency towards violence or even towards, uh, and, and in many cases, that men, they will act out their sense of powerlessness to control women. But it's especially pronounced in a Middle Eastern culture because there's already that structure and that patriarchy. However, in many Middle Eastern countries where they have more freedoms, the rates are far lower, and there's a combination of, like, income as well and then also like for instance in the many of the gulf countries you have much lower rates of gender-based violence you may still have 
polygamy and things like that, other, other issues. <laughs> However, the, the rates of actual gender-based violence are much lower and the, there are a lot more freedoms things like this. But I think in general, I mean, even in Christian societies, there were issues of gender-based violence and they'd be especially pronounced in situations of powerlessness. And so I think it's, it's not just something that's characteristic of Middle Eastern societies. Heather provides some examples of the challenges she has witnessed in East Jerusalem. There was one family who I'd really come come to know invited me to their child's birthday party and what, during the preparations we were actually in the kitchen um, getting everything ready for the child and getting the cake and just like the natural preparations that you would do for a child's birthday party. We suddenly heard um, yelling in the street and we ran out and in in these neighborhoods many times if police are sighted in in the neighborhood everybody runs out and yells to see what's happening and there's not a lot of fear of of these situations because they happen so regularly unfortunately and so we ran out to see what was happening and i'd never experienced this but suddenly i saw that there were just um, a lot of border police running through the streets and suddenly I saw that there was smoke in the distance so I went back inside figuring this is not you know it's not a safe environment and I was actually shocked at how many people remain in the streets like warning each other um, they're all trying to help each other out and I looked out the window at one point and I saw a child just about seven or eight years old and he was being taken by the border police And I'd heard of this happening, but when you actually see it, it's much, it's much more real. And knowing that this was just one of the neighbors here, and all the families knew this child, they all knew the family, and they, um, they were all yelling, they're taking one of our kids, they t they're taking one of our children. I mean, I completely felt helpless. Seeing like a child this young, like even if he had thrown something, I mean, knowing kids are kids, and especially living in these communities, sometimes they will shout or throw something at the police, even just to prove that they're uh, brave. However, like I, whatever the case is, to take a seven-year-old child into custody without even having the ability to see his parents, uh, without anything, to me that was shocking. Like, at most to provide rehabilitation, to provide counseling for the family, but no, to actually just take him into custody, that was a shocking thing. And what was even more shocking was how everything just returned to normal. Everybody went back in their homes, we brought the cake to the birthday party, and everybody continued on singing songs happily, acting like, oh, this is just another day in, in this neighborhood, we have this happen all the time. And they even all told me their arrest stories of, their, of certain kids who were arrested and what ages they were first arrested, because apparently everybody is arrested by the time they're 18 in this specific neighborhood. One introduced me to her teenage son who'd just been released uh, from prison and she was telling me how stressful it was as a mother, like worrying for your son while he's sitting in prison. And um, he told me that he allegedly was also just in the wrong place at the wrong time. So it, I think the impact on the mothers, it's very stressful. A lot of the mothers feel very helpless about this. 
And actually a lot of the young women now are also, they see it as an honor to be arrested too. So as far as gender equality, they believe like, you know, why are all the boys getting arrested? So a lot of them are out in the streets and saying, well, maybe, you know, when, by the time I turn 18, I'll also be arrested. And often it's usually most of them aren't doing, they're doing very minor infractions, uh, such as throwing something at a soldier um, that should not require an arrest. Often their neighborhoods can just suddenly be shut down for a few days, or they'll have these flying checkpoints where maybe there's some access to the neighborhood, but it's, there's only one exit, which takes forever to get out of. And these, these are people who actually live inside of Jerusalem and are just trying to make it to another part of the city. It involves a lot of harassment by soldiers, and the soldiers wouldn't say it's harassment, but for instance, I've heard a lot of stories of like soldiers that'll just purposefully drop somebody's identity card and then tell them, like, just pick it up for me, and just humiliating, degrading experiences. And sometimes people can be taken into a room for questioning, just for arbitrary reasons and just detained for several hours and they're trying to arrive to a job. These things actually add to a lot of pressure and a lot of the Palestinian homes, the men are the main breadwinner. It's expected that the woman is taking care of the family. It's uh, in the, especially in the Muslim community. Actually in the Christian communities, there's a lot of women who are also working in their professional. However, in the Muslim communities, most of the women, their main job is childcare, taking care of the home. And so for the men, they have this pressure. And then to add to it, they often can lose their jobs very easily. They don't have the same rights and workers' rights as, as an Israeli employee would. And then they come home and they are stressed, obviously. They're frustrated and perhaps their wife, she wants help, she wants attention. And often it, they just take out all of that stress that has built up throughout the day on, on their wife. And a lot of women in this situation don't feel that they have the ability to stand up for themselves because they're completely dependent on the men. And they're also afraid to ultimately to separate or divorce because they can basically lose everything. These things really disempower women because they have no clout in the community, they have no financial standing, they're completely dependent, and they're afraid of the Israeli the repercussions if they turn to the Israelis as well. And not to mention that if you turn to the police, it's also a shame on your family and on your neighborhood, and so that it all, it's like layer upon layer of powerlessness. In addition to Heather's interest in working with women in East Jerusalem, she is also involved in documenting Israeli human rights violations against Palestinians in the West Bank. We ask her to share some of the primary issues Palestinian women in the West Bank encounter due to the occupation. It's hard to say what the main issues that women in the West Bank are facing and the main uh, human rights violations that they're facing are because they're just so they're so vast. However, I can think of for instance one meeting of women that I attended that was in a small village that was close to located close to Ramallah and it's an agricultural village where a lot of people come they are landowners 
or they, um, some of them may work in the surrounding area in Taipei or Ramallah, but they, in general, they're very agricultural and very simple. They don't have any agenda. And we visited there and just the needs that these women were expressing and the experiences that they were, they were going through, it was overwhelming. Even on our way there, we experienced what they call a flying checkpoint from the Israeli army. Flying checkpoints refer to spontaneously established checkpoints where Israeli military vehicles suddenly inhibit free movement between towns and cities inside of Palestine. These slow down movement considerably, and they are often erected arbitrarily, sometimes with security considerations in mind, other times simply to harass the population. Heather continues, sharing how it was for her to encounter a flying checkpoint. It was a bit intimidating. I'd never been through that, and they thoroughly, thoroughly were checking everybody, so movement in and out. It took us much, much longer to arrive, and we were pretty late. And it made me think like this was this is normal and these and this village is experiencing this pretty much every day. And so we arrived and a lot of the other women were late also because they also had to go in and out of this uh, flying checkpoint. So for instance, this is just one small stress. And they began to share like so many things that they are experiencing at the hands of Israel. They are experiencing frequent uh, night raids into their homes. One woman was just talking about, like she said, you know, the soldiers, they don't even knock. They just come into our homes. They break things. They wake us all up. And often they end up taking one of our family members. And we have to stand there and watch. And we can't do anything about this. And she even said, like, nobody's doing anything about this. Like, why can't anybody just begin to act? Why do we have to endure this night after night? And her village, this village, uh, experiences these things frequently. They also um, spoke about the upcoming olive harvest, and they're saying, you know, we can't access our olive trees. We, the Israelis, are trying to postpone when we can even go, and we're only given, you know, two weeks within a year, and it's not enough time to even harvest all of the olives trees unless we get outside help. And they were overwhelmed by the situation. They also spoke of a lot of settler violence because they're located to s close to several illegal outposts. And they said a lot of the settlers will come in and harass them. And why is it that the settlers, they can come into their areas, but they're not allowed to go anywhere close to any jurisdiction of a, of a settlement, for instance. If they do, then a private settlement security guard has every right to drive them out, even if they're fairly a fairly long distance from the settlement. And yet settlers can come to their land and harass them fairly regularly. And so these women were saying, like, these things affect us on a daily basis. They were talking about how it affects their soul and how it affects their emotions. And it was actually very overwhelming because they wanted us to be able to help. Um, one woman even showed a deed to land from before 1948 and she was asking if she can go return to her land close to Haifa. And obviously it's not possible anymore. We had to, in a nice way, tell her that this was not an option at this point. But she didn't have any understanding like why it wouldn't be an option. She wasn't highly educated and all she knew was she had wrongfully lost land that she owned. 
And so these things, it's very overwhelming and I think that women often bear the brunt of these things within the home and feeling a responsibility for their home and also just the fact that they're very often very dependent on the society, on the community and on the men in the, in the community. And so I think it especially affects women in a unique way. Heather shares what motivates her to be actively engaged in the work she is doing. I think that having witnessed some of it, a lot of it comes from, for instance, having not been aware before and then having witnessed the actual issues like children being arrested or, for instance, the inequality and the lack of protecting people as human beings. And I think that these things, as I have seen them, they impact me. I think for me, also, my faith, having grown up seeing that I believe in a God of justice and of love and of mercy, a God who stood on the side of the oppressed always throughout history. I believe that you can't just see these things and do nothing. And for me, to do something is to work towards justice, to work in human rights, for instance. However, I think people can act in different ways, whether it's education, whether it's, for instance, telling stories like this. How my faith affects the way I view the occupation has evolved maybe over time. But I always was asking myself, who would Jesus actually be in the midst of this? What would his position be? And I never quite felt that it was to justify injustice. I always saw in his example somebody who stood on the side of the oppressed. Throughout scripture we see that God speaks for those who have no voice. We see that, or God tells us to speak for those who have no voice. He says to take care of the widow and the poor. And he also, there's a strong social justice element within the prophets. And for instance, one of my favorite verses is uh, Micah 6.8 where it says, uh, to love mercy, act justly, and walk humbly with the Lord your God. And I think if more of us would do that, the occupation would not exist. <laughs> As for what role Western Christians can play in contributing to the resolution of the conflict or to human rights, first and foremost is to be more educated about what is going on here. Then I think you need to actually be willing to know both sides and to understand both sides, to not only take sources or to hear the narrative of one side, but to actually really explore the other narrative as well, because it shouldn't be a threat to our beliefs if we believe in truth. And so I think that's the first step. I think the second would be to come and visit and see things for yourself, but in, again, to visit and be willing to speak with people that are actually living here, that are locals, from both Israelis and Palestinians, and to actually see the realities on the ground, be willing to go and be challenged, and to see, for instance, the security wall, or what Israel calls the security wall, and, and to see its effect on the communities, to see and to think like, what would God's view on these things be? Is he a God that actually would stand for segregation and for inequality? Or, you know, how can the church actually begin to be a place of healing in this? I think one way also would be to 
see where there are human rights violations and to actually be willing to speak out. I think the church actually has a responsibility to be a voice of truth on these issues and to not uh, be unaware because I think that it's a bad testimony to the rest of the world if the church is only touting one side if we see that there are certain things that are wrong, just as the prophets did, I think the church can be a voice of truth on these things. I do definitely think that decisions made by Western Christians have a direct impact here. And I think that the politicians here definitely pay attention to what Western Christians are saying. I think that the right-wing government, for instance, thinks that Christians in the West are highly supportive of the settlement enterprise, and so they don't see it as in their interest to stop in the same way that if there wasn't that support. And I think it influences American politics and American pressure towards Israel because many of the supporters of American politicians, such as the current president, they don't see the need to pressure Israel about settlements if most of their support base doesn't see any problem with it. Heather shares some of her concerns for the future as she is raising children in Jerusalem. As an American married to an Israeli, I think what scares me the most is more for my children. Like what kind of future is there for my children growing up as Israeli children who at this point are supposed to serve in the army and thinking like, you know, eventually they're gonna be faced with that choice. And for me, I would prefer that they not serve, but that means a prison sentence for them. They are very close to the Palestinian community. They're going to a school that's Palestinian and Israeli children studying together. But at the same time, at a certain age, they're going to become aware that they are obviously different in that we are in a situation where we're supposed to be enemies. So I think just considering how that will affect them is my biggest fear. So I am doing my best to raise them to understand and have compassion and to be friends with both communities. Heather explains about many of the challenges she witnesses through her work, and she also shares what keeps her motivated despite the hardship she sees. I think what keeps me going is just a strong desire to make a difference in this issue and to not just sit back passively. I think that even when there are obstacles and for instance in all the human rights world right now there's a lot of attacks and there's a shrinking space for human rights work especially in Israel but also for Palestinian human rights organizations. I think a lot of people are feeling hopeless um, but for me, I feel that, for instance, if you look at situations in history like the Berlin Wall falling, apartheid falling, the civil rights movement, all of them felt like they were at their worst time possible. Things had gotten extremely bad and that there was no way forward and then all of a sudden history changed. And it was only because of people that were committed to continuing. So I personally I think that that's inspiring. I work for an organization that we're challenging the situation and challenging policies on a regular basis and often it doesn't seem 
that anything is changing. But if we're setting precedents that force the state to respond and force the state to make their position known to the world, it will eventually bring the state basically to come to some pretty serious decisions. We asked Heather what organizations are engaged in constructive work in Israel and Palestine. She mentions Yeshdin and Adala, two human rights organizations. Yeshdin is an Israeli-led organization providing legal aid, including high court petitions on behalf of Palestinians in the occupied Palestinian territories. Adala is a Palestinian-led organization focusing on the Palestinian community with Israeli citizenship, providing legal representation and advocacy. If you'd like to learn more, you can find links to both of these organizations on our website. Thank you for listening to Heather's story. If you'd like to learn more about the issues raised in this episode, hear more stories, or connect with us, you can do so through our website at womenbehindthewall.com. If you like what you heard, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes, share this episode, or drop us a note. Until next time!